Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're certainly thankful for the rain that we've received today, and some of us got rain earlier this week on Tuesday night, and Father, we just are thankful for that and pray that you will continue to uh, bring more and more rain through us throughout this uh, uh, fall season, and we pray that uh, that will uh, help to help us to recover to some degree from this this long drought. Father, we're thankful for the many blessings you give us, for all the ways in which you provide our needs and take care of us and watch over us and protect us and give us opportunities to serve you on a daily basis. Now, Father, as we come to study your word, we pray that we might be encouraged this evening and that that as we study your word, we might come to a greater understanding of what your word teaches and that we might be able to, uh, uh, to apply this in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jeff, would you bring me a like a paper cup or a styrofoam cup or a clear glass or something that I can pour something into, would you please? A little object lesson tonight. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and last time we got down to verse 22, and I still want to say a few more things about verse 22 before we go forward. And as we go forward from 3.22 down through the end of chapter uh, 25, we're talking about basically the same thing. This is the heart of Paul's explanation of how a person is justified. Now, we've gone over this a lot, and so most of you are pretty well informed on justification. So I'm going to try to bring in a few things, maybe that uh, I, and do some things. No, don't empty. Empty. Okay. Well, you could have come down the middle aisle, but I guess you didn't want to have the back of your head on camera. Yeah. All right. Great. See, I always have to ask people for an empty cup because there was a time when uh, uh, back at Baraka, when they first went into the, uh, first moved into Sage Road, and somebody put vodka in Pastor Theme's water glass. And he would, no, it wasn't me. I was way too young at that time. I didn't even know what vodka was. I think it was John Hintz, who's now a pastor. Well, I told that story once at Preston City, and I was, uh, I was coughing one night. And so Jim Sexton went down to get me some water, and he didn't have any vodka, but he found a salt shaker, and he dumped half the salt shaker into that glass of water. And I took one big gulp and just spewed salt water. So I'm very cautious now. I don't trust anybody. After after that happened with Pastor Theme, Roger was in charge of that water glass and nobody but Roger could mess with it. So we all, all learn our, <clears throat> our various lessons. Okay, uh, tonight we're in Romans 3.22 and I want to begin looking at these three doctrines that are developed here that are that are interrelated in Paul's explanation in verses 22, 23, uh, 24, and 25. And in these verses, we have imputation, justification, redemption, and propitiation. And that is a tremendous amount to cover. 
And as I said, I've covered most of this before, but I want to do two things. I want to cover this in, in uh, these in a little bit of a uh, different way, and some that's a little bit more, perhaps a little more concise, so that, and that was one of my objectives in getting into Romans, was to not get too bogged down in Romans, so that somebody who needs a more basic approach uh, can have it. And I know at times I've really drilled down because it's just important to understand some things. You just can't avoid it. Okay, in this section, from 321 down through, I think the way I've outlined it is actually down through um, chapter 5, verse 11, we have the key element, the focus of justification by faith. How does a person become justified? So in verse 21, I just want to pick up the context there. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And I pointed out last time there's a lot of debate over what this means. And it's best to understand this as God's own righteousness. It is a revelation, an unveiling of God's own righteousness so that we come to understand his righteousness as he possesses it as an as one of his attributes and that this is revealed having been witnessed by the law and the prophets and those two terms together are a, a way that the Jews had of referring to the uh, Old Testament which is all they have for a Bible at this point is just the the books of the Old Testament in our Old Testament canon, we have 39 books. We break them down a little differently. We'll have uh, divisions in books where they only had one book. We'll have First and Second Samuel. And in the uh, Hebrew Bible, that's First Kings, or it's literally ki- or just Kings. And then we break down the, the prophets, the, uh, the 12, into 12 distinct uh, books, and they just have it as one uh, called the 12. So there's there's it, but it's the same books. It, they they're just counted and put together a little differently, and the orders a little different. You have the Torah, which is the first five books, then the uh, prophets, the former prophets and latter prophets, the Nevi'im, and then the writings. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Daniel. This is in the last part, and then First and Second Chronicles. So the last book. In a Hebrew Bible, it's what we refer to as Second Chronicles. So it would often be referred to as the Law, which wouldn't just refer to the five books of the Torah, but sometimes that would refer to the entire uh, canon of the Hebrew Scriptures, and sometimes it's referred to as the Law and the Prophets. This morning, I uh, to, last night at sunset, uh, we had uh, the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the period of the days of awe, which is how the uh, Jewish people refer to this time period, the high holy days, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, which means uh, the head or the first of the year. Uh, they believe that the that the new year marks the is marks the first day of the creation week of Genesis one, and so that's that's what why they have New Year uh, Rosh Hashanah when they have it. And then the period of the High Holy Days ends a week from Saturday with Yom Kippur, which is really fits well because today we'll probably get into imputation, imputation and uh, justification. The next Thursday night we'll get into propitiation, which fits perfectly with uh, the Day of Atonement with, with Yom Kippur. And uh, so this morning, I was going to go last night, but I've been fighting off this cold and I just couldn't drag myself out last night, and uh, so I got up this morning for an 8.30 uh, service at, at Beth Yashurn, and I got there a little bit early because I wanted to scope out some of the uh, logistics there with such a large crowd in reference to the Nighton or Israel we're going to have uh, later on in November, and I, I got in, and I walked down to the front looking, and I saw several people I knew, and I and, uh, saw one man who's the president of the Jewish Federation here in Houston, who, who I know. So I walked down to say hello to him, and he was on the front row, and the seat right behind him was, was uh, empty, so that's where I chose to sat. And I, as the service was about to begin, I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, well, Lee, how long is this? does the service last? He says, till 1. 
said, can you get your people to come for four and a half hour service? I said, not even on a good day. So, and, and I said, and I'm not going to stay for four and a half hours because I have a lunch appointment. So, and in fact, I left, I left early. I left at about 1045. And most of you, those of you who are here, who ever spent any time over on Sage Road at Baraka Church thought that the pastor kept it a little cold over there. I've been accused of keeping it cold here, and it's four degrees warmer here than it was there. But I'm telling you, neither of us know what a cold congregation, cold auditorium is like. It was at no warmer than 60, maybe 58 in there. I was so cold, my bones were hurting. And I, I could not have lasted uh, any longer. I mean, I was getting a headache. It was, it was so cold. But it was, uh, it was very interesting. And I'm able to sit there and read through the Hebrew uh, as they read through the scriptures and everything. So that was quite interesting. And then, you know, this is one of the things that pastors. It, it's an idealistic vision to say that pastors can only study and teach. If you're in a large church with a staff of 20 or 25, you may get away with it. But if you're in a small church, that doesn't work. There are a lot of different things that come up in the daily and weekly routine of a pastor that you need to spend some time doing. That was one thing. I was very welcomed, and I hope that uh, if any of uh, my Jewish friends, those that I've come in contact with through APAC and some of these other things, visit the church, they will be as warmly welcomed as I've been at uh, these events. That was also the, the warmth of their welcome was also a topic of conversation at my lunch meeting. I was invited to a luncheon today. Um, very int- I, I end up in some really unusual circumstances. And um, I was invited by uh, a woman, Arlene Samuels, who is the uh, regional outreach director for APAC for the southeast region. She's in, in um, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And she was speaking about Israel and APAC what APAC does to a, a group of leadership, the, the women in leadership of a Glow International. Anybody here know what a Glow International is? Yeah, you, you, might not, you know, if it hadn't been you, I'd have said you were revealing your Pentecostal past. But uh, uh, it started, I think, as a, as a ministry in the charismatic movement back in the 50s, and it was primarily a, a women's prayer Thing and it's grown now. It's international. They have men's aglow and women's aglow, and and one of their primary objectives is to educate. Uh, and it's interdenominational. And the women that were there, the three or four that I talked to, went. One went to a United Presbyterian Church. Another went to a um, I don't know a Baptist church. And a, so there, it doesn't necessarily have that. It doesn't mean that everybody there is charismatic anymore. But they're. They really have a primary thrust towards educating people about Israel, and they're very, very supportive of Israel. And so Arlene had invited me uh, for two reasons. One was just to be at that event, and another was to uh, spend some time talking to me about some other things uh, that I might be able to do with APAC. So I did that this afternoon and then came home about 3 o'clock. So I've had an extremely interesting and busy day. But it all goes to the fact that I believe that part of the role of a pastor is to represent the congregation within the community. It's not just to teach the congregation. That's the primary mission. But also, as part of the body of Christ, as a leader of this congregation, I think the role of a pastor is also to be involved to some degree in the community. I know some people really overdo it, and that's really overdone in some Christian communities, and I certainly am not, uh, do not think that that ought to be done to that level of distraction. But there ought to be a presence so that people know that when they hear the name West Houston Bible Church, there they go, they don't go, well, where's that? I've never heard of that before. There ought to be some recognition, and the only way that happens is if you um, take your light out from under the uh, bushel and let it be seen a little bit. So that was that was my day, uh, and it was it was really interesting. And the, the ladies that were there at the luncheon were the twelve regional and international directors for a Glow International, and so they were strategizing how they can involve their people a lot more in um, targeting their uh, political representatives in Washington on 
on legislation that impacts Israel to vote pro-Israel. And right now things look very good. We have the strongest pro-Israel Congress that we've ever had. But we're only an election away from changing that. So that's always something we have to be in prayer for. So anyway, that was that was kind of my day, and different um, sort of being involved in different religious communities, one might say. All right, back to back to Romans. How is a person justified? Well, in Romans three twenty two, we have this phrase: even the righteousness of God. And as I said, we ought to translate that so we catch it: God's righteousness, or maybe even translate it as God's own righteousness. So we really make that clear. Even the righteousness of God, and then we have the next phrase, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. And again, I pointed out that that uh, this is a uh, a dia preposition in Greek, which indicates the intermediate means of receiving something through faith. It is not because of faith, but faith is the means by which we appropriate what Christ did. Faith in itself is non-meritorious. What that means is that, that in contrast to Calvinistic teaching, in contrast to not all Calvinists, but especially high Calvinists, teach that faith is a gift from God. Saving faith is. But faith is faith. The, uh, the, the merit isn't in the faith. The merit is in the object of the faith. It is Christ who died. We're saved on the basis of what we believe not the kind of faith we have. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that there is a faith in Christ that doesn't save because it's not the right kind of faith. Uh, any faith in Christ is the right kind of faith. As I pointed out last time, there's also debate today about how to understand this phrase, the, which is literally translated the faith of Jesus Christ. It's a genitive but it's expressed that way to emphasize the object of the faith and what is called an objective genitive, the faith of Christ, so that we're our faith in Christ, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of the class last time, I went through various passages that indicate that the object of faith is Jesus Christ. It is not that we're saved by Jesus' faith or Jesus' faithfulness, which is how some would translate this today, but it is we're saved by faith toward Jesus. He is the object of our faith. So we see this phrase, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. Now this references the the doctrine of imputation. How do we receive the righteousness of God? How does that come to us? Now, historically in Christianity, there's two different ways of explaining this doctrine of imputation. So first of all, I want to just look at uh, the basic words. We want to define it. The basic words are, are interesting. The Greek word that we have uh, for imputation, which we actually find uh, twice, over in uh, over in Romans chapter four, in verse uh, two, or excuse me, verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him. That's the translation of the New King James. It was accounted to him. Sometimes some translations will say it was reckoned to him. Uh, old the Old King James said was imputed to him for righteousness. That's from Genesis 15:6, and then it's repeated again in Genesis. I mean, in Romans 4:4. 4, 4, now to him who works, the wages are are not counted as grace, but as debt. That word "not counted" counted is this word logizomai. So it's used both in three and four. In three, it's reckoned, imputed, or counted, and then in four, it is simply counted. The word in terms of the uh, basic definitions in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, edited by Colin Brown, has, they list three basic meanings, to reckon, to think, or credit. Now, that first word, reckon, we'll look at it in a minute. That's, that's a basic English word for thinking or counting. 
Now, you, you may think of somebody up in the hill saying, well, I reckon that's so. And that just goes back to old English. It's a very, very old English word for thinking. You'll find it in the old King James. You'll find it in Shakespeare. You'll find it back um, prior to the 15th century. It is not a, uh, a country southern slang word. It is a very old English word for thinking. So it's the, the three words that they list for the meaning are reckon, to think, to credit. The next paragraph or two that I have there come out of the uh, uh, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich uh, lexicon edited by, uh, by Danker. And he notes that it is, was primarily a mathematical and accounting term. And that's really key. It is, was an accounting term. This is a word that accountants would use as they are working through their debit and credit sheet, which I have a picture of at the bottom. You'll notice in the far uh, right two columns, you have a debit column and you have a credit column. And you see the lines that are drawn there indicate movement of uh, crediting of numbers from one column to another column. This is done on a balance sheet. So it's a, it's a term uh, related to, to crediting something. Now, since the word impute or reckon uh, used there in uh, Romans 4.3 comes out of a quote from Genesis 15.6, we also have to look at the Hebrew word, which is hashab. And hashab means to think, to plan, to make a judgment, imagine, count, uh, compute, calculate, value, regard, think, plan, event. So you see, this is a thought word. It has to do with what you think about something, uh, give, uh, uh, appraising the value of something. Now, when we get into any word, one of the things I enjoyed with one of my most more difficult Hebrew profs at, at seminary was that when we got through working through all the data in, the, in Hebrew or Greek, and we would suggest, we'd suggest that a word should be translated a certain way in English, then we had to go to an English dictionary, preferably Webster's Third International Dictionary, unabridged, or Oxford English Dictionary, or both. And we had to look at the English definitions for those words to make sure that we were choosing an English word that accurately reflected the sense of meaning that we had uh, from the Greek word. And that's something that I find is not emphasized by a lot of people who teach uh, word studies or wor word analysis. And it's really important because if you're reading in your English Bible and you read impute or reckon or credit, you need to stop and think, well, how does that word really relate to this transaction where we're uh, credited the righteousness of Christ? So I thought, well, I'll just put some examples up here from the from the various dictionaries. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. states that the uh, uh, impute, the verb, number one, it means to attribute something to someone. Attribute something. Now, uh, when you attribute something to someone, you're assigning a value to them. You're not necessarily giving them something or making them something. You're attributing that something to or ascribing something to them. That's what they, the word they use in the second definition. In theology, they say, it means to ascribe righteousness or guilt to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. Now, that's, that's important to understand that. In finance, it means to assign a value to something by inference from the value of the products or processes to which it contributes. In... Um, also, in the Oxford English Dictionary, I looked up the word reckon, and it has similar ideas of to calculate, to be of the opinion of something, to regard something in a special way. But notice the bottom paragraph. The origin is from the Old English, and it originally meant to give an account of items received. So it's an accounting term. So it was a good translation in, in the King James Version and in Older English. Then when we look at the verb to credit something, also in the OED, means to publicly acknowledge someone as a participant in the production of something 
or to credit someone or ascribe an achievement or quality to someone. Now, that's important. Now, there's going to be two words I want to talk about here. One is impute, and the other is impart. This is the difference. With imparting something, I have a glass. That's a person. And I'm going to impart water to that cup so that there is now water in the cup. Water has become, something has actually, some concrete substance has actually been placed inside the cup. That's the Roman Catholic view of imputation. It's not that you are credited with the righteousness of Christ, but we are, the, the Christian is made righteous. There's a difference between making someone righteous because now they're moral, they're morally changed. And imputation, as Protestants have understood it, means to credit something for God to forensically or judicially declare a person to be justified. And that's why when you see within Roman Catholic theology, they never know if they're good enough to have eternal life is because the, the righteousness is imparted each time they participate in a sacrament so that when I partake of Mass, I get a little more righteousness. And eventually you accumulate enough righteousness to where you become, you become righteous. You're not just declared righteous. That is a very different concept than what the Protestant uh, view was of a forensic or judicial declaration of righteousness. So it's the difference between assigning or ascribing a value to someone. When you ascribe that value to someone, they don't change internally. They are, but they are said to be something. There's no internal change. It's a judicial declaration by God. And last time I used the illustration, I had a conversation afterwards which uh, pointed out uh, another way of explaining this. I used the illustration of co-signing for a loan. I talked about one time I thought about buying a house many years ago when I was first out of college, and uh, I didn't have the money in the bank, and I didn't have the financial resources or income as a first-year teacher in the state of Texas to um, uh, to qualify for, for a loan. But my father could co-sign. Now, in the process of co-signing on a loan, his money did not get transferred into my account. That would be impartation. But what the bank did was they looked at his account and they said on the basis of his account and his uh, financial ability, they would justify a loan to me, knowing that what stood behind my loan was not my value, but the value of my father. That's what we have in the doctrine of imputation of righteousness. It's never our value. We're never, we're not made righteous. We're not saved on the basis of who and what we are ever. We don't trust in Jesus and have some sort of internal change that, that moves us from being uh, unacceptable to being acceptable to God. What happens is we are covered by the death of Christ, we're given and credited with his righteousness so that we're declared righteous not on the basis of who we are or what we've done or anything like that. We're declared righteous because we have, we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. Now, this means that the action for definition of imputation, it's the action of the justice of God God is the supreme court of uh, the supreme judge of the universe. It's the action of the justice of God whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, uh, credited or attributed to a human being. It is a legal act. It is not a, an actual transformation. It is a legal declaration. Uh, there are two categories of imputations real imputations 
and judicial imputations. Now, here's where I'm going to give you a little extra, extra bonus tonight for understanding this. As you all are aware, back about 13 years ago, I um, uh, went up to Preston City Bible Church to pastor. And after I, sometime during the process of interviewing, I heard lots of horror stories about the hundred or so uh, applications and resumes that they had received as they were looking for a pastor. And they had received a number of... Um, they had received a number of resumes from Dallas Theological Seminary graduates. And one of the questions that they had in their doctoral questionnaire, they had about 30 questions, was uh, explain to us the difference between a real and a judicial imputation and identify which imputations are real and which imputations are judicial. Not one Dallas Seminary graduate could answer that. And somebody commented on that to me, and I said, well, the reason is, is because Dallas Seminary graduates are no longer required to read Lewis Sperry Chafer. Because this, I haven't seen anybody else prior to Chafer make this distinction. And Chafer does this in volume two of his systematic theology. And I just cut some quotes out here to read this to you because I thought that this showed some real insight in Dr. Chafer's thinking. He, he, he writes, In the matter of man's relation to God, the Bible presents three major imputations. A, the imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. B, the imputation of, this, of the sin of man to the substitute, Christ, and C, an imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer. Now, these three imputations all relate to what takes place surrounding justification. He goes on to say, imputation may be either real or judicial. That which is real is the reckoning or imputation or crediting to one of the to one of that which is antecedently his. Now, that is a difficult verbiage for a lot of people to understand. What that basically means is that there is an affinity or an attraction between what is imputed and, and to whom it is imputed, like sin to the sin nature. There's an affinity or an attraction between the two. So that's what makes it a real imputation. While He then says, while a judicial imputation is the reckoning to one of that which is not antecedently his. For example, when sin, our sin, is imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross because he's not a sinner, there's no affinity or correlation between those two things. He's pure, our sin is sin, and those don't go together. So that's called a judicial imputation. That's the difference between real and judicial. He says, had the trespass mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.19 been imputed to those mentioned, as naturally it would have been, it would have been a real imputation. That means there was a, an affinity there. The, tres, the trespasses were their own, and the reckoning of those trespasses to them would have been no more than an official declaration of their accountability. Over against this, or what he means is in contrast to this, when the apostle said, put that to my account, he referred to a debt that was not antecedently his own, one that was not related to him. Now, we'll look at that verse in a minute. That's from Philemon, which shows a good uh, everyday use of the word uh, imputation. Schaefer then goes on to say, it will be seen, however, that the imputation of human sin to Christ is since it could not be under any circumstance his own, it's a clear instance of judicial imputation. Likewise, the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer, while it provides a ground so equitable that God is said to be just when he justifies those who believe on Christ, does not bestow upon the believer anything which is antecedently his own. In other words, there's no affinity between Christ's righteousness and our corrupt nature 
We're getting something we don't deserve, in other words. This imputation is also easily identified as being judicial in character. And then one line, uh, no, I've got another short paragraph after this. He says, the principle of imputation is thus seen to be one in which certain realities are reckoned from one thing to another thing. The story is complete as represented in the three major imputations. Man's need is indicated in the imputation from Adam to his posterity, his sin to all, the, all human beings. Man's salvation is secured in the imputation of man's demerit, that is, our debt. Remember, you have a debit column and a credit column. Our indebtedness, our certificate of indebtedness, Colossians 2.14, is nailed to the cross. Our indebtedness is, is applied to Christ legally. And he says, and man's eternal standing and felicity are established through the imputation of the righteousness of God to man when he is placed in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would, I would separate those logically. We, we receive imputation of righteousness, declared righteous, and then identified uh, uh, with Christ by the baptism of the Spirit logically afterward. It is conceded, although they probably take place t- simultaneously, Uh, And then his last quote, it is conceded that there are slight differences to be noted in certain particulars when these three major imputations are compared. These are largely developed by the truth that two are judicial imputations and one is real. Okay, now that's some tough stuff to kind of think your way through. And sadly, seminary students are no longer, at Dallas at least, are no longer exposed to reading through something like that. That is important to develop the thinking skills of a pastor because he needs to be able to understand that well enough to be able to break it down and explain it to people and not just echo it or parrot it. Because when you get into words like this is not antecedently his, what in the world does that mean? We just don't think like that. That sounds like something that ought to be in a lawyer's contract and which explains why it's in paragraphs like this, and uh, not something that would be uh, as part of a gospel presentation. But this is important. And the other thing I'm I'm expressing here is how how well Dr. Chafer developed this. Now, Pastor Thiem developed it a little further, and he added a couple more things which I think were significant. Uh, He had four real imputations. Remember, a real imputation means that there is an affinity between what is imputed and the target. So the first is Adam's original sin to the sin nature of each human being at birth. And that's in, we'll cover that in Romans 5, 12 to 21. And that is, um, that, Dr. Chafer had that one as well, because he's just focusing on what's happening in relation to justification. Um, Pastor Theme added this one, eternal life to the human spirit. I think that is, that is appropriate. Uh, eternal life is imputed to the human spirit, 1 John 5, 11, and 12. But the next two really relate to uh, future events. They're not related to justification per se. There's blessings in time are imputed to the righteousness of God, and blessings in eternity are then given to the resurrected believer. It's a result of three, actually. The blessings are... It's important to understand that concept. The blessings are imputed to the righteousness of Christ. We don't get blessed because of who we are. We get... The blessing comes to us because of Christ's righteousness. If it's based on who we are, then it becomes works. We get blessings because of what we do. Now, in a sense, that's true, but not in a meritorious sense. And the way to understand this is that God has already determined all the blessings that he's going to distribute to each one of us uh, in time and in eternity. But whether it's actively give, actually given or distributed depends upon whether or not we have the maturity to handle it. God's not going to give us something that would destroy us or something we couldn't handle. For example... If I were Bill Gates and I had a brand-new baby son, I might want to give him the most expensive car made in the world. But at the age of three, four, five, or six, 
He can't drive it. If he did, he would destroy it at the age of 16. I would probably not give it to him either. I would wait until he was 30 and then give him the keys. But I might have had the title deed put in his name when I bought it at his birth. So it's his at birth, but it's not given to him to use until he reaches an age of maturity when he can appropriately and responsibly use that. We often find that kind of a thing given in in wills or trusts where people who uh, have a, a lot of money or resources will not allow all of that money to go to an immature uh, child until they have reached an age when hopefully they will use it wisely and in a mature manner. So we, as we grow as believers, God distributes blessings to us that he's already given us, but he doesn't distribute unless we're mature enough to handle it. That's why it's not based on works, but they're given by grace. Now, in terms of judicial imputations, which is what we're really focusing on in justification, the first judicial imputation is where our personal sins are assigned or ascribed or credited to Jesus Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin, First Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians, chapter five. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It, he didn't become a sinner, but he is judicially given or assigned our sin so that he is separated from the Father on the cross. And he's separated from the Father during those three hours because he is, being, he is judicially guilty. He's not actually guilty because he doesn't become a sinner but he's judicially guilty because he is being assigned the guilt and the penalty for our sin. And then when we're saved, Christ's perfect righteousness is then ascribed or credited to us. We're still, we're no more moral than we were before we were saved. We're no better than we were before we were saved. We are still the same, we still have the same qualitatively evil sin nature that we had before we were sinned. See, the sin nature that you and I have is simply the capacity to evil. It's the same capacity to evil that, that Satan has. The only difference is he can actuate his sinful desires in ways we can't even dream of because he has such more power and ability than we do. But the evil that is in your heart, now I hate to, people, sometimes people don't like to hear this. The evil that is in your heart is no better and no worse than the evil that is in, uh, that was in Adolf Hitler's heart. It's the same capacity for evil. This is, now it's possible Hitler was demon influenced or maybe even demon possessed. I hesitate to go that way because people want to jump there too quickly because they don't want to believe that a human being is capable of that kind of evil all on his own. But the Bible says that if we reject God, we are capable. Uh, Jeremiah said in the, uh, in the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And he was talking about believers. He's not talking about unbelievers. So we tend to think so highly of ourselves that, oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can, given the right circumstances. And if you reject God and, uh, you know, spiral out of control long enough, you can end up just like any evil person in history. You have the same capacity. The only thing that makes a difference is the choices you made versus the choices that they make. So that Christ's righteousness is assigned to us or credited to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't, he's not looking at our sin because that's been covered by Christ's righteousness. And so he, because we possess that righteousness as ours, he declares us to be justified. So what am I saying? Three things. Number one, the judicial concept means to attribute something to a person as the judicial or meritorious reason of blessing or condemnation, reward or punishment. Uh, 
It is the what is attributed to us or imputed to us that is the basis for our blessing. Or in the case of Adam's original sin, condemnation and judgment. Second thing I'm saying is that to impute sin, for example, Adam's original sin, means to credit or assign the guilt of sin to all of Adam's descendants. Because he is our, he is both our federal head as well as the seminal head. Now that's where you get into two other areas of, of what the Bible, what theology calls anthropology. Federal headship simply means he is our designated legal representative. Just as you and I have uh, elect representatives to go to Washington, D.C. or to go to Austin to represent us and their decisions are our decisions. Think about that. Whoever you have is your congressional representative because they represent you. Their decision, whether you like it or not, is your decision. That's the role of a representative. Adam's decision was our decision. Whether we would think we would make that decision or not is not the point. He's our legally designated representative. Because he sinned, that guilt is assigned to all of his descendants. But it's not only assigned to all of his descendants legally, but the corruption itself is passed on genetically from father to child, from generation to generation. That's what seminal means. It is there's a physical connection to Adam and a legal connection so that the sin nature is passed on genetically and it is uh, when when we're born, God immediately imputes to that sin nature the guilt of Adam's original sin. And then the third point is that imputation is very different from impartation. We don't become righteous. Now, there's character transformation that takes place after salvation as a result of spiritual growth, but that's not imputation and justification. So imputation is different from impartation. Now some scripture passages. Philemon 18 is one example of where Paul uses the word logizomai in a way that is um, in in a non-theological context. And he's talking about Onesimus the slave who has run away from Philemon. And he says to Philemon, who is the slave owner, both Onesimus and Philemon are Christians. And uh, Paul says to, to Philemon, the owner, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, if there's a debt, then charge that or impute that or reckon that to my account. See, Paul hasn't done anything against Philemon. So that debt would be assigned to him, even though there's nothing on his part that deserves that. So that would be an example of a real as opposed to a judicial uh, judicial imputation. Romans 5 and 5:12 and following also uh, utilizes a lot of the uh, concepts related to imputation. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's the imputation of Adam's sin. Verse 13, for until the law, personal sin was in the world, but personal sin is not imputed when there is no law. So the psalmist talks about blessed is the man who, to whom God does not impute his sin. There's not a judgment of sin there. Second Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That's not the basis of our guilt. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Psalm 32.2a, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. As, and Romans 4.8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So this has to do with the fact that we are not judged and condemned for our sin. You're, you're condemned because of Adam's sin. You know, one of the things I, li- I used to like to throw out for beginning theology students is the question, uh, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? 
Think about that. Do you sin because you're a sinner? In other words, because you have the nature, you're born with a nature that is guilty and therefore you sin. Or are you a sinner because you commit sin? Now, see, in Arminianism and Pelagianism, uh, they believe man's born basically good, and then they make bad decisions. They follow in Adam's path. They're not born corrupt. They become corrupt by making sinful choices. But Scripture teaches that we're all guilty because of Adam's sin. And so we're born corrupt. But that's not the ba- So the basis of our judgment isn't personal sin. The basis of judgment is Adam's guilt, Adam's sin. So we'll get into those passages in Romans 5. Um, I've got those in here a couple of times. Now, the verse that we'll get to when we get into Romans 4, which is a real foundation for understanding that, Im- that this concept of imputation is as a basis for justification, is the foundation is Genesis 15:6 with a- Abraham. When it's a parenthetical statement that refers back to a previous time than the events in Genesis 15, and it should be translated for at a former time he had already believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, had reckoned it or imputed it to him as righteousness. That's the basis for Abraham's justification, that he believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. That's the same thing we're saying now. Abraham wasn't saved because he obeyed God. Abraham wasn't saved because he did things, uh, followed the law. Abraham was saved because he believed God, the promise of God to provide a Savior, and God imputed to him his righteousness. Now, the illustration of this, that we, the best illustration we get from the Old Testament is from Zechariah 3, uh, 1 and following. And this is a heavenly scene. And Zechariah is the one who's speaking, and he's speaking about God. He said, then he, that is God, showed me Joshua the high priest. This is Josh, not Joshua of uh, the book of Joshua fame, but this is the uh, high priest by that name. At, after the exile, after the Jews had returned from Babylon during the time of Zechariah, he said, then he showed me Zechariah the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. And Satan is standing at his right hand to oppose him. Satan is the antagonist of God, the adversary of every believer. So Satan is accusing, bringing accusation against Joshua. And the Lord says to Satan, which means the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, So here you have the Lord, the angel of the Lord, speaking to Satan, and he says, referring to another personage, see, this is important, this shows that that Yahweh, the the Shema, we recited it this morning uh, for Rosh Hashanah, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, Adonai Oheinu, the Lord, Adonai, Echad. The Lord is one. But see, it's not a one of singularity, but it is a one of multiplicity. There's another word other than Echad, another form of the numeral one that is used to indicate a singularity. This is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2, that when a man and a woman come together, the two become one flesh. They, they don't lose their individual identity, but they become a new unity. So there's multiplicity within it. So the word echad there does not mean a singularity, but it means a singularity within a multi- multiplicity, but a unity within a multiplicity. And so you see this multiplicity here. You have the Lord, the angel of the Lord, speaking to Satan and saying the Lord, referring to another divine personage, rebuke you. And we believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, before he came to earth in the flesh, and that the other Lord that he's speaking of here is God the Father. So you have the two members of the Trinity here. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this 
referring to Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, this is someone destined for condemnation, but he has been saved. He's been delivered. Now, Joshua was, we're told, was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. So this is a picture the high priest has on his contaminated, defiled garments, just as we are born contaminated and defiled by sin. And there is going to be a removal of that. Take away the filthy garments from him. Uh, he's told and say to him, see, I've removed your iniquity from you. This is the payment of the sin penalty that took place at the cross. See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. That's the covering of righteousness. See, it's the external is removed. The in, he, Joshua doesn't change, but he, has, he now becomes ritually or externally cleansed, which is comparable to the imputation of righteousness. And Zechariah 3, 5, And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So he put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So this is a physical depiction of what happens in this somewhat abstract concept of imputation of righteousness. So we can diagram it this way. Here we are. Actually, I lost some of the animation here. That top plus R shouldn't be there yet. Um, It's what happens when you change things from one program to another. Uh, We are born with minus R. And God, though, is plus R. He is perfect righteousness and justice, and so his perfect righteousness and justice has to condemn our relative righteousness. No matter how good you are, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags or a filthy garment, Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us, Isaiah says. Not some of us, but all of us. That's every Jew Every Gentile, every human being, all of us have become like one who is unclean. There's no exception. All of our righteous deeds, not our unrighteous deeds, but all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So what happens is that Jesus Christ, who is perfect righteousness because he is the eternal Son of God, goes to the cross. At the cross, our sins are assigned to him, are imputed to him, and his, and in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's that phrase again, not Christ's righteousness, both in Romans and here it's with the righteousness of God, which applies to all three members of the Trinity as assigned to us. And so that we are We receive that assignment of righteousness, and then we are declared righteous. That is justification. That explains when we understand this, we understand we can then understand everything that Paul is explaining in subsequent verses. So in verse 22 reads, even the righteousness of God, that is his perfect character, his righteousness of his character, through faith in Jesus Christ, goes to all and on all who believe. Notice, believe plus nothing. There's no difference. Why? The explanation, verse 23 is really sort of a a parenthetical, a parenthesis, an aside between verse 22 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can measure up to God's standard. The glory of God is his integrity his righteousness, and his justice. And so none of us measures up. And so we are, verse 24, we'll come back to this next time, being justified freely by his grace through... See, what comes first? If we're justified through redemption, what happened first? Redemption. Redemption is the payment of the price. So we're justified freely through redemption. So we'll come back next time and we'll look at the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. And so we'll look at those two concepts uh, next week on Thursday night.
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to come to a greater understanding of what uh, imputation means, what it means to be reckoned righteousness, to be credited with righteousness, that we are not made righteous, but we receive uh, the assignment or the uh, God ascribes to us through faith the righteousness of Christ so that we're saved not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of who he is. And that this then is uh, that free gift of how we become righteous in your sight. And pray that you'll help us to understand these things better now. In Christ's name, amen.